tell you about a friend and colleague who is a fantastic grant consultant and wonderful volunteer. I first met Allison Boyd way back in 2013. Back in time. (laughs) She signed up for the Southern Regional Grant Conference here in Georgia and then immediately emailed asking how she could help in a volunteer role. And I know you took her right up on that. Oh, you know I did. Hmm. She volunteered that whole first day as a conference room monitor. And that first impression of Allison is exactly who she is. As the principal writer for Boyd Grants, she jumps right in, helps whenever needed, and gets the job done. So just so y'all know, Allison has her GPC and she is super dedicated to advancing the grants profession. With her company Boyd Grants, she works with nonprofits, higher education, law enforcement, and municipalities, and offers services like mentoring, training, grant development, writing and research. Look her up at boydgrants.com. Hey there, I'm Kimberly Hayes Day Muga. And I'm Amanda Day. And you are listening to Season 4 of the Fundraising Heyday Podcast. We're doing more in Season 4 to help nonprofits, local governments, and the consultants who serve them raise more money and get more grants by sharing real-world experiences and interviews with experts in getting it done. You may hear a y'all or two along the way Uh and singing and strange sound effects. And, and those sound effects come in no extra charge, just by the way. They do. And in fact, we'll go ahead and give a uh, disclaimer that um, we are still socially distancing, being smart with things. Um, and so we're on Zencaster today, and our guest warned us that he's near an airport. So you may get some added bonus sound effects today. Flyovers? We don't know. We're just here to have fun and learn. So <laughs> there is a lot more of us to love in Season 4, especially after the Christmas holidays. There's probably a little more of me to love in general. But we have episodes now dropping every other week, all year long. So let's get into it. This podcast is brought to you by Season 4 sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Don't let grants stress you out. Their team can help you with grant readiness and training, grant research, grant writing, mock review, as well as providing numerous DIY resources, guides, and templates. Did you know that with every Fundraising Heyday episode, we create a coordinating blog post on their website, dhleonardconsulting.com? Check it out today. So when Kimberly and I started planning the lineup of episodes for this season, we knew we wanted to highlight the varying specialties within our grant field every year. So our plan each season is to interview a grant professional with expertise based on a different sector. Yes, shocking though it may seem, we don't know everything about everything. (laughs) I'm just going to put that out there. So humble, so proud to be so humble. Anyway, we are taking this opportunity to highlight the many varying specialties of grant professionals, as Amanda said. And today, we are talking to TJ Hansel, who has spent his grant career working for tribal nations. That's right. TJ is affiliated with the Turtle Mountain Chippewa Tribe of North Dakota, and he is the chief visionary of Hansel Companies, which I just love. I'm going to have have to borrow that title, chief visionary. I like that. He serves as president of the Arizona founding chapter of the Grant Professionals Association. He's also president of the Southwestern Institute for the Education of Native Americans and president of the Las Brisas Academy PTO. In addition, he's a member of the Hopi Education Endowment Foundation. You add to that a wife and three kids, and I'm really not quite sure when TJ sleeps. Over the course of his career, he served as chief executive officer for several nonprofits, including the Boys and Girls Club in Montana. He's even worked with the federal government. Um, He helped award over $600 million in Indian housing block grants through the Department of Housing and Urban Development, as well as $2.4 billion, with a B, uh, of awards through the Energy Efficiency and Conservation block grant during a six-month period through the Department of Energy's Golden Field Office. TJ has a master's in public administration as well as a bachelor's of business administration, both from the University of North Dakota. I could say so much more about the breadth of TJ's knowledge and experience, but I think most of us would rather jump into a conversation with the man himself. So welcome, TJ, and thank you so much for joining us today. 
Well, thanks for having me, Amanda Kimberly. It's a pleasure to be here today. And uh, I'll avoid the awkward silence piece there for you. <laughs> we appreciate, we appreciate that. that. Hey, I, yeah, when I, when I, you owe me a Coke. Uh, um, when uh, I read on your bio about the Energy Efficiency and Conservation Block Grant, TJ, it brought back some horrible memories from the one time I managed that grant was during the stimulus time period back in 2008, 2009. And the city I was working for basically got an automatic award through that grant, um, which we were happy, you know, we were, that was, you know, grants that you don't have to, you know, be competitive for. We're happy for those. We had some great projects, but we didn't have enough projects for the money they had given us. So we did a, did a lot of things that we could do. But when we were done, we were like, okay, we're, we're ready to give this back. There's other people that probably need it more. We don't have any other projects that fit currently. And they didn't want to take the money back. It was like, I've never had such a hard time giving grant money back as I have with that program. Um, and so. Yeah, it was, it was, it was an interesting time. I mean, we had a lot yes. of travel nations um, that would get a small dollar amount. And then you look at how much reporting was required for those ECBG grants. Uh-huh. And they're like, ah, $15,000 is going to get ate up in the first month of a reporting. So we don't want the money. So uh-huh. we actually we actually had to give um, some leeway on some of the travel nations, especially in Alaska, and allow them to do collaborative approaches. Because without doing a collaborative approach on those grants, they didn't have enough money to even do a single thing, typically. Uh, uh-huh. And so we had collaborative nature or collaborative approaches in Alaska. They had like thirty different tribes wow. um, get involved, and so they would form a coalition and. You'd have a couple hundred thousand dollars. They'd do a couple solar installations, might do some motorization of the houses and stuff. But it was it was never really a lot of money. And that's one of the things that a lot of tribal nations across the country faces. Even in the grant sector on the federal side, it's the intent is there to give them help and want to help them, but there's never enough money behind it a lot of times. Uh, and then we, we had a really good, uh, interesting conversation one time. We were sitting there and we're talking about how the president of the United States, who was a Barack Obama at the time, could pick up the phone and he wouldn't get any of those people in Alaska on the phone because they're out subsistence farming. So they're out on the, the fish farms and they're out doing the, all that stuff. They're not going to pick up the phone because without those fish, without that food, uh-huh. they're not going to survive. So they could care less about fifteen grand, $100,000, million in grants. That wasn't very important to them at the time. And nobody in D.C. could understand that, which was was interesting. Because we'd be joking about it in Golden about, hey, yeah, let's go to Alaska and, and we'll go actually meet these people and all this stuff. And um, we might get some stuff done. And then a couple months later, I was on the Better Buildings Neighborhood Program and actually flew to Alaska and took care of a grant because we couldn't get a hold of anybody. Uh, and um, it was interesting because then six months or a year later, Yukon men came on Discovery Channel. And all the same people I talked to and met with up there and drank beer with at two in the morning were on that, were on that TV show. So no it was, it was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It was interesting because I was actually on the Yukon River fishing with those guys. And then we, and during the middle of the summer, uh, it never really gets dark up there. Sure. So we were running around like three in the morning thinking it was like five o'clock in the afternoon. So it was, it's interesting. So the being in the ground world, you just never know where you go. <laughs> That's that true. I, I'm just curious as to what brought you into the grant world in the first place. No one's path I've found is ever like a straight arrow shot. It's always winding or at least semi-circular. Before you got to the Yukon River and a potential brush <laughs> with reality TV stardom, which is why we all get into grants. I know that. Mm-hmm. What, what, what brought you to the grants world to begin with? Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Trenton, North Dakota. It's a very small community, about five miles from Montana, 50 miles south of the Canadian border. Uh, And it's right in the middle of the Trenton Indian Service Area, which is unique because it was uh, when they were doing the land allocations for the main tribe, there wasn't enough land on the reservation left for the tribal members. So they gave us some trust land in North Dakota and Montana. And so they formed this 10,000 square mile uh, service area. And so you have tribal land scattered throughout, basically trust land with all this private land and everything else. Um, but that's where I grew up. And so there was a separate tribal government there. And my mom actually worked for the tribe for many, many years. And she ran the Title IX program, which was probably the Meals on Wheels program, uh, some of the commodity distribution. Uh, and then also she was the HIV AIDS coordinator for the tribe. 
and she did a lot of stuff back then because we had one individual, which is cousin of mine, actually did have HIV. And uh, it was during the time when Philadelphia would come out in the movie theaters and everybody was somewhat unaware of what really HIV and AIDS was still. Mm -hmm. So there's still a lot of misinformation, a lot of people a little paranoid about doing anything. And so she was getting grants and stuff to go out there and do community engagement to try and help them understand what HIV and AIDS was. So she was writing a lot of grants. And I would go and play around on a computer because it was the old uh, Oregon Trail type days where you <laughs> oh my God. Days, you know, yeah, yep. reminiscent getting back in the old times. But <laughs> I, I, I go to her office and help her. And, and so that was during the time when the CFR was still the paper copies, the Federal Register. Oh, wow. We are going back in time. Yeah. So I would help her go through some of those at times. I'd help her write some things here and there. Even at, say, eight, nine, ten years old, I was still trying to help her with different things because she she need help her once in a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just naturally got into the grants, understood it. And as I started getting older and older, I uh, just kind of progressed. And so in college, I was doing stuff with my MPA degree, went back to the tribe and worked with the clinic. And that's when I wrote the first uh, grant, truly grant that I actually wrote by myself, which was a public health nurse. Uh, we were awarded that funding. And then from there, it just continued to escalate. Um, went and ran this, uh, the Boys and Girls Club in Cup Bank, Montana. So I was doing a lot of grant writing then. Mm-hmm. And I went down to... Um, Colorado and just continuing and continuing until today, where now I'm more of a seasoned professional with 15 plus years of grant experience. Mm-hmm. And if you go back to way back when, um, we helped form a little league program and stuff in Trenton. And so we weren't writing grants per se, but we we're still writing letters of uh, for fundraising and different things of that nature in different sure. local businesses. And it's hard to turn down an eight, nine year old that walks in <laughs> and says, Hey, can you help me yes. with some? can you help me with some fees to get into this baseball tournament? Cause we got 10 other kids that want to play. We just don't have the funds to go. And then can you help us with the baseball bat? Oh, what about baseball glove? What about uniforms? Wow. Uh, and so we, we were successful in building that up from scratch to the point where we actually built the field. Um, awesome. It wasn't, wasn't the greatest field, but it was our field of dreams. Um, and uh, we were able to, to have that baseball program go for like five years before we got too old and it just kind of collapsed because there uh, wasn't enough kids interested in stuff like that. But during that time frame, I was one of the lead fundraising individuals without even knowing it since I was so <laughs> young. So, so that's kind so, of the yeah. evolution. Oh. Yeah. Well, and I think you may be the only person I've ever spoke to TJ that basically it's like you're following, you know, a lot of, a lot of cops become cops because their dads and their grandfathers were cops. Right. I, I don't think I've ever met a grant professionals because, well, cause that's what my, my mom did. I love that. It's a, uh, legacy. It's a legacy. Yes, it is. It, it, it is. It is. And it's, it's one of those where being a uh, native American um, it's, you want to give back. And one of the, the best ways you can get back is trying to help them find ways to improve the economy, improve their situation. And unfortunately, if you're not getting into the federal contracting, 8A programs, different things of that nature, travel enterprises like the casinos, mm-hmm. the, the best way to do that is through grants, through the federal government or state government uh, foundations that might be able to help you out. So that's that's why it's really important for me at, at that time is to come back and try and help. And I've, I've gone back to tribe several times and tried to help out here and there. Um, but the, one of the, the things that we'll talk about later is, is some of those barriers. And one of the barriers is just the, the political environment within a tribe. Um, some tribes are really good in terms of trying to eliminate the nepotism and different things that happen. Mm-hmm. But it, it's really hard when you're, you're governing your own people not to have your cousin sitting on the board with you and then another cousin. And then it's just a bunch of family members sitting on the board, the council. Uh, and that creates some different issues there because now you're not thinking about it from the travel perspective. You're thinking about it from you did me wrong last week because you scored 60 points on me in a basketball game or oh, whatever. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's different things that are kind of petty that come into it. And those are some of those things you got to navigate that you may not know as an outside consultant because it's all internal. It's been building up for years. It it actually makes me think of oddly enough of my of my dad. He was we grew up. He was a Southern Baptist preacher, but then he became an Episcopal priest, which is a whole nother podcast. But. <laughs> 
we grew up moving to different kind of smallish towns around the South. And obviously um, I, I'm not, we weren't in tribal nations to do that, but we were in small towns and those kinds of grudges and grudge holding and drama and all that kind of stuff just seem to, I don't know, be even more exaggerated, I think, sometimes in these super small communities where everyone does really know everyone. And I can imagine how it could get when everyone um, has known everyone's families for, you know, a long, long time, too. So, yeah. And it, we always had a joke, too, where I grew up in Trenton, as if someone really wanted to know what you, what you were up to, by the time you walked from your driveway to your house, which is typically not that far Everybody in the town would know because it's just a small, tight-knit sure. community, and sure. everybody talks. Everybody knows everybody's business. But when it comes back to the, the tribal governments and different things, there, there's a lot of misconceptions and stuff with different people because they'll see a chairman or they'll see a council member that has a nicer pickup or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, they're going to have a little bit nicer things because they have an actual good-paying job right. um, compared to a lot of the other people on the reservation or in the tribal community sometimes where there's a lot of unemployment, there's, there's a lot of despair and, and hopelessness. I mean, you look at Pine Ridge, South Dakota, and you still are experiencing today 80% unemployment rates are higher in some cases. Um, if you have all these people that are still living without electricity and water, even like a Navajo Nation in Arizona, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's going to create these inequalities even within a tribe. And the whole point of us and, and working with the tribal communities to try and grow our tribal sovereignty and everything else is to eliminate some of those inequalities. But we have such huge inequalities just in our own groups. Um, it's, it, it creates difficulties for sure when you're trying to, to do different things and even plan out grants, for example, um, because you want to help the most needy. But sometimes the most needy aren't the ones that really need the, the most help in order to be beneficial long term. So when, earlier when you were, you were, had first starting started to talk about some of the obstacles um, that you face in, um, well, just in funding in general, it just really, it made me pause when you were talking about how, you know, maybe to someone in a bureau somewhere in Washington or somewhere at a state office would say, looking at the situation you had just described, well, here are people who are living without running water and electricity. So this $15,000 grant is really going to transform lives. But in actuality, it could just end up causing more hardship because it's not enough money to make a systemic change that needs to come, right? But it's just enough money to drive somebody crazy who has to report on it and try and put up two solar panels or whatever and have a nice day. Exactly. And I mean, you can even look at what's going on with Navajo Nation right now. They had $700 million plus come in from the CARES Act. Mm-hmm. And they operate just like the federal government. They're a huge organization because they're the largest tribe in the country. So you're basically dealing with another state agency. Mm-hmm. They're not mm-hmm. built to move very fast. And in order, in order for them to spend that much money, they have to get their 30 councils members all on the same page. They need to have the president and vice president on the same page with the council. You need to have 110 chapters, which you could consider like a county, for example, if you want to do a oh. metaphor. And you got to have all those people come together and agree that we're going to do these things. And then even if they don't agree – and it's just it gets passed anyway, and the the president's office and the council basically say, "Here's ten million dollars for this," and you got to allocate between one hundred ten chapters. Wow. The money doesn't quite go around as quickly. And then uh-huh. again, you have a, a set time frame to use the money in this particular case with CARES Act of December thirtieth of twenty twenty. Now it's been extended and everything, but prior to that, you created so much stress on this particular organization to try and spend that much money in that time frame, And you don't allow them any extension after that in order to do a construction project, which is really where the heart of the, the matter is. Right. They need the water. Yeah. yeah. They need the yeah. infrastructure. Yeah. You can't put a, a water plant in, in a day. You just can't. Right? <laughs> no. no. I mean, I Actually, wish I could. No, we're from Atlanta, TJ, where there's no problems at all with our ancient water and sewer system. Oh, I, there's I know, no right? corruption, and everyone holds hands, and we all sing Kumbaya. <laughs> oh, we, don't, we don't hold hands during the COVID pandemic, but yeah, yeah, it's totally. 
You still can't. You still sing Kumbaya, though, right? Yeah, right. Sure, oh. sure. <laughs> but, but yeah, so so you get, everybody understands that that when you do a construction project, it takes time to put together. Yeah. And and the biggest need was those pieces like that, the infrastructure pieces. Instead of doing band aids, let's actually fix it. Uh, let's go in there and repair what's actually the issue. And and unfortunately, that happens quite a bit where there's not enough money or the time frame doesn't work right. Um, and it just it creates more issues sometimes than it is good because now you spend all this money on stuff. Now you extend it at the last minute. They could have redone a bunch of different things prior and had a better plan and done a lot better things. Um, but you have to keep moving forward. You have to keep just being flexible and move forward. And that's unfortunately what the tribes have to do a lot of times. Because there's other programs too that are similar, like there's a Homeland Security funding that is typically sucked up by all the Arizona tribes uh, next to the border because they have the biggest needs and the biggest issues. But we still have tons of border and different Homeland Security issues that the other tribes could use the money for. Mm -hmm. But even with that funding source, there's only $10 million allocated. There's 22 federally recognized tribes in the state of Arizona alone. There is an additional couple hundred in California, probably Nevada, some of these areas are Texas, New Mexico that could apply for it as well, but there's just not enough money to go around because what's one drone cost? A couple hundred thousand dollars, then you got to have someone manage it, you got to train them on it, you got to do all this stuff. So mm-hmm. you put a million dollars towards that, now you have $9 million left to fund all these other programs. Well, now you got to build a wall or you got to build um, some additional structures so you can actually monitor the border. It just, it just Sometimes the money just isn't there to do what really needs to be done. Uh, and it's the same way in the United States overall, like the infrastructure for energy and, and electricity and stuff isn't there. And uh, you look at the price tag and it's like, well, how are we going to spend $200 billion more just to fix this one little area? Um, it's just it, it, operation maintenance some costs sometimes add up too, which are never factored into the grants. So, for example, you give all this money to a, a tribe mm-hmm. and they do this project well, it's going to cost $500,000 to operate and maintain that over the course of the next five years. Where's that money coming from? Right. That's that's a problem because they can't tax anybody. So, oh. I mean, they, they can tax people that come on reservations and things, but they, they can't pass a bond. They can't do different things. They don't have the population really right. Right. to do that because they don't want to hurt their own people. They don't want to tax their own people right. and right. cause even more issues. So it, you get into these different situations where, well, that makes sense if you're – on the outside of the reservation, but inside the reservation, it doesn't work. So again, there's there's different challenges you just have to be aware of. And, and some of those are understanding those travel politics, understanding the history, um, getting the trust because a lot of tribes have been burned before. Right. So even, even myself, twice, yeah. Um, yeah, even myself, I'm, I'm native and I go into a, a group and talking with a bunch of other individuals that are, are just like me and they don't see me as a, a peer. They see me as a non-native person coming in there because I don't have that native, those native features that you would think of when you watch okay. a TV show or anything. Sure. Sure. Um, and so I look like the northern natives, which is more assimilated into the, the what you would think of an American uh, where it's, you can't really tell what they really are. But down here, you have the issue in like Arizona where everybody thinks that the natives are actually Hispanic because they, they're so close in sure. how they look. Uh, and so you have that issue when you walk in, even if you are tribal or native in, in some sense, they don't necessarily trust you. You have to earn it over time. And if you do one thing that, that causes some issues, that can just kill everything in the past doesn't matter how much you've done or anything. It, it can just sour that whole relationship. Um, and so it's, it's difficult to, to kind of come in um, without having some inside knowledge and, and have someone to kind of help guide you on, on what the best way is to, to treat these situations as they come up. I think you make a really great argument for anyone who is working with communities that are not, don't reflect, that you don't reflect the community you're serving necessarily is to go in respectfully and listen a lot before you open your mouth. Exactly. (laughs) And and suss it out. Yeah. Yeah. And and all the grants, the fundraising, everything that we do, it's all relationship based. Sure, Uh sure. And so that's, that's where people have to understand that. It doesn't matter who you're standing next to in line at a grocery store or who you're standing next to on a plane, if you're even on a plane these days. Um, 
you just never know who could help you out and who who has decision making power. Um, and you just got to treat people the way you want to be treated yourself. And uh, you treat them with respect and admiration, all the different things. You're going to get that back. Sure. And that's that's how you got to approach some of these situations: is you respect the culture, you respect their their heritage, their their traditions, and different things of that nature. Um, and you just move forward, and you continue to to stay upfront and honest and truthful, and you're not going to have too many issues. And it's just a matter of uh, producing at that point, because everybody needs to. They don't want to pay for something that doesn't end up with a return uh and they're and they're the same way so gotta produce at the same time otherwise like everybody will we'll all get moved to the side and have someone else come in true that mm-hmm. i and i'd like to go back some of the you know you've talked about some of the obstacles and you, you know obviously as grant writers all of us you know we'd always like to have more money than we're given to help with these projects because like you said they all have long-term cost and stuff like that. But if, if you could go in and explain to the people that make the rules about grants and tweak some of the things, particularly for tribal nations, what would be some of the changes you would recommend as far as grant funding works? Uh, you know, whether it's more time or whether it's them more involved on the front end or. Yeah. So I, I think, I think one of the things that would be good is to actually have more tribal influence over how the money is being allocated and, and distributed so having more having more of a native presence in some of these agencies, like like for instance, we might see some some huge change coming up with uh, right, right. Representative Holland becoming the Interior Secretary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean that's that's the first time we've ever had a Native American run the Interior, which has oversight over everything that's Native American and tribal. Mm-hmm. Um, like like for instance, most people probably don't know that the Indian Education um, is not part of the Department of Education at the United States. It's actually underneath the Bureau of Indian Education, which is underneath BIA, which is now under Interior. Whole different agency. Whole different agency. Uh-huh. What is Interior, a group that manages land and public trust and all that other stuff, <laughs> know about education? Right? I mean, you right. can make the argument, but that's how it's set up for, for the tribal nations and, and the Bureau of Indian Education. It's underneath Interior. It's not under Department of Education. Now, they work try and work together. Uh-huh. Again, it's still... Most people, if you if you brought up Bureau of Indian Education, they would think it's just a subdivision underneath the U.S. Department of Education. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so, having more natives in in key roles that that truly understand what are some of those issues, because even like IHS Indian Health Services, we're we're so severely underfunded, we can't keep doctors in these rural areas, and so all this stuff adds up because if you're not healthy, you're not concentrating in school. If you're not concentrating in school, you're not getting educated. If you're not educated, you can't help yourself in the future. Mm-hmm. You can't create jobs. You can't do this. It's, it's just this endless cycle that we get into at times. And having more influence and, and knowledge base there in the D.C. area when we start making these allocations and uh, getting the funding out uh, would be good. But then just giving them enough funding so it's, it's not that band-aid approach of, well, we need we need to take care of them because we have treaties and we hosed them in the past and stuff like that. It's, it's just treat us like everybody else, which is we have needs, we have things, um, and in order to do that, provide that, we need their adequate amount of funding. Um, I mean, those would yes. be the the high level stuff, and then the the lower level stuff would be just having people that that are truly motivated and invested in helping the different populations move forward. I mean, that's, that's always key is to find the right champion uh, to make sure something happens because we, when I was on the federal side, um, helping make grants and do different things, there was a couple of grant shops out there that we knew about. They write the best grant in the world. I mean, you look at it, you look at someone else and you're like, eh, this one's going to win every single time because it's so nicely done. It's worded the right way. Uh-huh. It says everything under the sun. Horrible at implementing, though. I mean, just downright horrible. And so that was one of the, the nuances behind why they wanted to go and do like the FAPIS, uh, which is the uh-huh. federal reporting on everything. And yeah. um, because they knew that these grants are being wrote in a way that that's going to make us, it's, it's, it's basically marketing and sales one-on-one. Sure. You hit all the points that we need to see. They give us a nice fancy designs and everything makes us all warm and fuzzy inside. Um, shows a lot of babies and puppies type of thing. 
Sure. <laughs> but when it gets down to the rubber meets the road, they can't actually do what they say they do. And so why do we keep giving these people all this money if they can't actually implement actually cause change? And uh, I mean, that's, that's the other thing too, is allow the time and, and the people that actually get to find the, the necessary resources to make sure it's a, a success. Um, and a lot of times these, these organizations that get funded um, from a travel side, they don't have enough technical resources or they don't have a group they can go back to. Um, Arizona, for example, with the Department of Education has a very limited Indian education department. I think they have like three people in there. Compared to Montana, that only has seven tribes and a lot less population, they have like 15, 16 people in that education department. So it's, huh. it's one of those where there's just discrepancies across the board and how do we get people from Montana that value that input and value that, that area down here in Arizona that would do the same thing? Because relatively speaking, Arizona should have a group of about 50, 60 if Montana sure. has 15. Mm-hmm. Um, just because of the size of the, the state, the, the number of people, the largest tribe in the country is located here. I mean, so it's, it's one of those where I think there's a lot of different things that could happen, but the, the first one is just have more influence and give adequate funding to actually do the work that they need to do. So, Well, we spent quite a bit of time talking about federal grant funding for tribes, which I think is what most of us that aren't, you know, I, I've never worked with tribal nations, and that's my go-to thought when of grant funding is federal funding. But are there actually state programs or even major foundations that support tribal activities? Yeah, there is a lot of state agencies that will help fund travel organizations directly, the tribe directly. Uh, like here in Arizona, you got the governor's office of highway safety. You have the public health emergency preparedness where I was actually um, I know that role well because I was a FEP coordinator for a year or so with uh, the state. And so we would we had 12 of the 22 tribes um, that would get funding directly from the state, from the CDC and FEMA for public health emergency preparedness. Uh-huh. So that meant 10 other tribes didn't. And the tribes have the option to enter into an agreement with the state. But a lot of times the tribes will not do that because they don't want that state oversight. They only want to deal with the feds um, because it's a ah. different level. It's a different ballgame. Okay. Um, and so there is funding out there through states like governor's office. There's the emergency preparedness. There's homeland security money. Um, a lot of different agencies will make it available to the tribes, and it's up to the tribe to actually make that decision. Do we want to have that additional state oversight to a degree and work with the state, um, or do we just want to stick to the federal? That's where some tribes, you'll see, they only have federal funding, even though there could be state funding allocated to them or allowed that they could get. Mm-hmm. Um, they only want to deal with the feds because that's, that's what they're used to. They don't want to deal with the secondary um, subdivision of the United States government, for example, um, jurisdictional issues, different things like that could happen. And that's why you see a lot of tribal nations um, really just stick to the federal side of things. Um, but the other thing that a lot of tribes do is they do create 501c3s that go after different funding sources. So you have economic development corporations, you have uh, CDFIs, uh, community development finance institutions that are formed by the tribe but are a 501c3 outside the tribal realm that go out from different states and, and uh, foundations. So like, for example, First Nations Development Institute, it's out of Longmont, Colorado. They're one of the uh, experts on everything when it comes to Native philanthropy and uh, Native foundations, and they give a lot of money out to tribal organizations too. Um, and the reason why you, you see a lot of that stuff happen with the tribe is a lot of foundations – prefer to give to a 501c3 because of IRS rules and different things versus tribe directly. Sure. Even, even though there is another nonprofit section uh, in IRS code is 7871 that basically allows deductions and everything just like a 501c3. Hmm. But because the 501c3 is the thing that everybody knows in terms of donors and mm-hmm. the community mm-hmm. at large, they, they, they tend to go to that. And that's what the, the Hopi Education Endowment Fund is is a 7871 or the tribe. And so we get a lot of funding and stuff. We got funding from directly from the tribe uh, to do scholarship for the Hopi um, tribe. Right. We've given out tons of scholarship funds for that. But because it's a 7871, 
sometimes you struggle with getting uh, individuals to give because they're like, well, what's a 7871? It's an education issue. They just, they don't know. They don't know. Uh, and a lot of times they're like, well, it's kind of new. It's, it, we're uncomfortable with it. So we'll give it to you because we know you teach here and we know different people from the Hopi, uh, the, the Heath Fund and different things. But there's still a little anxiety at times because they're just not certain. And uh, mm-hmm. but, but that's where the 501c3s do come in for the tribes is they will create 501c3 entities that can then help the tribal governments themselves by providing those different services, um, whether it's um, – welfare services, social services, whatever it might be. Uh, economic development is a huge one for a lot of them. That's that's where a lot of the 501c3s you'll see is uh, either to the CDFI or the Economic Development Corporation. But in terms of uh, major foundations, there is, there's a few out there that will fund. Um, it's hard to kind of find them every once in a while. The, the Lana Foundation or Lana Foundation on New Mexico is one that, that sometimes will fund you have First Nations development that sometimes will fund a tribe. Uh, but again, most of them like to fund 501c3s that are just tribal organizations working within a tribal community. Um, and that's that's how they get a lot of the foundation funding. But even then, the foundation side, the, the giving on the Native Americans across the country is not very good. It's, it's about 1% or less of the overall giving pool every year. Wow. wow. And uh, like there was a, a study that First Nations Development Institute put out um, a while ago now, and from 2006 to 2014, you saw a huge drop in the overall dollars that were donated to Native American communities and organizations in the philanthropy world. I mean, it was like 40% or, or some crazy number um, that got – it just – sometimes it's just – you know, they, they see the needs, they see the individual aspects, but because it's always in their, their view, they never really see it. Like, for example, all the people in Arizona that go to the casinos here, they see Talking Stick, they see Gila River, Lone Butte, super nice casinos, Vegas style, all that stuff. They don't go any further into the reservation, but if you drove another two miles in, you see the, the cars breaking down. You have the, the rundown homes. You have all these different issues that look like third world country. Right. And all they see is the glamour and the glitz, the, the casino. Mm-hmm. And they think, well, the casino is the, the thing that's going to save everybody. Well, right. Like they don't need funding because look, at look, there's, there are all these yeah. casinos. Okay. Yeah, sure. Exactly. And so a lot of people don't understand either that it's the 90-10 rule. 10% right. of casinos in the country make up 90% of the, the overall revenue. Right. In, mo- in most cases, the casinos are just an economic driver to create jobs for people that wouldn't have jobs otherwise. They either lose money or they break even. And it, there's, other, there's other issues that come with the casino too, so it's not necessarily the, the greatest thing sometimes. But in, in overall, you're not going to see the talking stick that, that creates billions of dollars a year in revenue. You're not going to see the Foxwoods Casino which had 2.5 billion in revenue at one point. Um, you're not going to see those types of casinos everywhere. You're going to see, like in my home uh, back in North Dakota, you're going to see this little place out in the middle of nowhere with lights and stuff. And you can walk in, you get the slot machines, you get maybe a poker table or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's their casino. That's the tribal casino. That's the economic development thing that's bringing all these millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. And, uh, it just it doesn't happen that way. Um and so there's there's those issues too that that pop up as well that, that sometimes you got to deal with like with the energy efficiency conservation block grant program, the largest energy hog on a reservation is the casino. Oh wow! But you couldn't use any of the funding to do any energy efficiency or anything on the casino. Right. What? <laughs> yeah. But, oh. And, and the thing that the funding logic. Yeah. The. The policy wonks and stuff that are making these decisions, they don't understand that at the end of a transmission line is where you're paying the highest transmission costs. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at a, a casino in Oklahoma, they're built next to the, the edges of the board or the reservation because they're closer to the transmission lines, but they're sure. also closer to populations. Mm-hmm. But if you have a casino built in the middle, you might be paying 20 cents a kilowatt compared to over in a, a city that's maybe five miles away that's only paying seven cents a kilowatt hour wow. because they're at the end of that transmission line. It's more costly to put that in or it's older line, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So 
it made more sense to give the money to casino because it's going to have the biggest savings. But they couldn't then, do it. Then I could just I could imagine the headlines if people don't understand how this works. It's like government funding goes to casino, you know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the Washington Post test. It's the yeah. It's, it's all that stuff. But but when you start getting down to it, the the PR aspects of this stuff need to to be removed and actually looked at it from the perspective of what's going to have the biggest benefit. Exactly. If the casino is the benefit for the tribe, why can't we use the grant funds to help improve the casino's operations, whether it's energy-wise, personnel-wise, or whatever it might be? I mean, if that's what's going to help them the best, let's do that. I think Mm -hmm. that's kind of the intent behind a lot of the grants is to do what you think is the best for your community. But in the end, sometimes we have too many restrictions placed on us as tribal nations that create a little headache. and again, that's another one of those barriers sometimes that you have to look at is it'd be great to put a solar array in, but it can't be connected to a casino. Well, it kind of defeats the purpose of the solar array because there's no buildings around it other than the casino. Yeah, which and is the not, biggest thing that's supposed to be there to help employ people. And oh, well, sure, sure. So there's there's those issues too. But, but to get back to the foundations and everything, typically um, there's not a lot of foundations that will fund the tribe directly. Uh, unless there's like a tribal college or something involved mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or you, you create that entity that they can give to that then will help the tribe overall. Uh, so a lot of the funding that goes to the tribe directly, uh, the tribal government would be federal funding. That's probably 95 to 98% of the funding. Then there's some state funding that's out there. Um, and the other thing that, that sometimes happen is you have like the Shakopee tribe, uh, it's a minute walking uh, tribe up in, uh, Minneapolis area. They have a nice casino there that's one of the better ones in the country. And they'll give to, I think they gave $35 million or something crazy a couple of years ago to other tribal organizations across the country, including tribal governments. Nice. So, like, so like for example, um, my tribe, the Trump on Chippewa, was trying to build a couple buildings and different things. And they actually went out and applied for a grant from Shakopee and they were able to get funding to help build those buildings directly from another tribe. Wow. So every once in a while, you'll, you'll, you'll see that stuff happen too. And uh, a lot of the casinos uh, will have that caveat where they only fund like Bernardino County. But if you're a tribal organization, they'll fund anywhere in the country. Okay. Because, because they understand that it, it's just like in Alaska too, with uh, the regional corporations and then in uh, uh, Alaska native corporations, so Alaska is broken to 13 or 14 different uh, Alaska Native corporations. And so they're either given land or, or whatever else. So like the Doyon Corporation, uh, I might have said that wrong, huge land mass in the middle of Alaska right next to Canada. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of mineral resources there, just a lot of land. Uh, so not, nothing they can make a lot of money on. Now you go to like the Nana Corporation, they have the Red Dog Mine, which is the largest zinc producing mine in the world, billion dollars a year in revenue. What they do is they pool the money into like a J8 fund or an I9 fund or something. Um, I'm confusing the language or the, the right terminology, but they put it into a fund basically and they distribute it out back to all the different communities up there to try and uh, equalize some of the, uh, the riches of the, the different communities. Because some like Nana, huge mineral resources, Doyon, huge landmass, really poor in terms of resources. So they try and level it out that way. That's a nice, that's actually a beautiful example of collaborative uh, fundraising and sharing. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's working pretty well for the, the Alaska tribes. They have a couple advantages too on the government contracting side that's really helped them out as well. So you have done so much, and I'd like to thank you for educating me so well about all the nuances of funding for tribal nations, something I did not know anything about. I'm wondering if you, on this podcast, if we could put you in a time machine, take you back in time. There's a lot of time, space, continuum stuff that I'm not going to get into right now. (laughs) But you could go, we could all go back and we are talking back in time, back. um, And you're talking to young TJ. What are the two things you would tell him about, um, the career you've chosen, either warnings or advice? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, we could always do the warnings and say, get out, you're not going to make a lot of money and all that good stuff uh, that's associated with grants. But but really, no, it's it's the grant world has been really good um, in this particular area. Working with tribes has been uh, really, really good for me as well. So the, the one major piece of advice I would not only give myself, but any young person that's looking at getting in any profession, whether it's grant writing or, or engineering or whatever, is to find that individual, that mentor that really mm. wants to help them be successful. I mean, that's one of the biggest things you could do is to find that person that can pass on all that knowledge, all the different things you want to avoid, the pitfalls, the, the different things that could come up in this situation or that situation and help you figure out how to get out of it. But give you enough information to guide you, but still allow you to do what you want to do and how you want to live and how it evolves for yourself. But that mentor, that, that individual that's been there, done that, really understands the landscape that you're getting into. That would be one of the, the biggest pieces of advice is to, to find someone that really understands and understands it well and then just be a sponge and suck up everything you possibly could. That's, I mean, that's, that's actually fabulous advice. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's the one thing I would tell myself and anybody else. Um, the one thing I would tell myself personally would be, uh, don't screw around so much in college. And actually, <laughs> um, because in, in college, we went in the master's program. It was always at night and it was like Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Well, Fridays we'd like to go home or we'd like to go do something else. And so I skipped a lot of those classes and didn't really take advantage of the different pieces that you really need now, which is the network, the relationships, some of sure, those things sure. that are really important. Um, the, the actual theories and stuff I learned in the, the public administration program, not necessarily applicable in a lot of cases, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's that piece wasn't the most important piece. It was being in the classroom with the professors, with the other students and building those relationships because you just never know. Like I said, you could be sitting on a plane next to somebody or whatever, and they could have huge influence on what you do in the future. Um, and there's, there's people today that I still run into uh, while I'm walking around with the, the North Dakota alumni stuff on, um, and they know exactly where we were, exactly who we might be. And you start talking to them, and you find out this world is super small. Oh, it's I mean, tiny. Super small. Kevin Bacon, six degrees of separation doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work. It's, it's really like one or two people oh, on the They know. And uh, – so it's it's one of those where I would I would say to to really take advantage of those situations to build those relationships as you can, because the university could have great things, the the people could have had great things, and it's it's always funny. The one thing I tell a couple uh, people I talk to is um, my professor, in one of my MPA classes, he was a Ministry of Law professor, and one of the things that that he was known for is he's an expert on Indian gaming. And so, of course, being me, because I like to challenge authority and different things sometimes, I, I had to write my paper on how my tribe could start another casino. And he was like, yeah, it sounds like a good idea, TJ, but I don't think it's ever going to happen again because the governor doesn't want to stay in North Dakota and all this other stuff. And I said, well, I'm still going to write it. So I wrote the paper. He gave me a B on the paper. Fast forward uh, 10, 15 years later. He goes and helps my tribe start a casino and probably use that paper to, as some of the background and research for it. Because I laid out I laid out the entire case of how they could start a casino in, in Western North Dakota, where I was from. And uh, him and uh, another uh, professor from the law school at University of North Dakota were brought in to help consult and get that started. And wow. I, I would love to talk to him again. Um, so if Professor Light ever listens to this, I would love to talk to him about that. <laughs> And, uh, Shout out! <laughs> yeah, see, see if he ever used any of that to actually help him on that one. Okay. Uh, and would that make him change that B to an A now that he knows how helpful that paper was, right? No, <laughs> yeah, you know, my my economics background says comparative advantage and opportunity cost, all this other stuff. Uh, the bigger thing is opportunity cost. I don't know if I would have really worked any much harder because a B is no different than an A when it all gets down to it. Because I just I just need a 3.0 to graduate, and that's what I got. And <laughs> practicality, yeah. another mark exactly. of a great grand professional. The thing I would like to point out when anybody ever tells me about GPA matters is: Do you ever ask your doctor what they got on their last block exam? 
<laughs> but CJ, you gotta understand, you're talking to the girl who I had one B in college, the rest were A's, and that B just killed me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh yeah. yes, opposites attract. Yes, yes. Okay. Oh, I know. I know. I was I was kind of like that for a while, and I got into the economics classes, and they were talking about opportunity costs, and I really yeah. at home because I I'd rather be out having fun, doing other things, and enjoying the college experience way too much. So, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's all good, but, uh, definitely that would, that would be one of those things for sure is, um, build the relationships and continue to build relationships throughout your life because those are going to be one of the most important assets you have. Great. Thanks. Well, TJ, if anybody wants to reach out to you, how can they do that? Yeah, so they can hit me up on my phone, uh, 602-885-4454, text, phone, that's fine. Uh, Or you can go to my website, which is uh, hanselgroup.com, H-A-N-S-E-L-L group.com. And then the email is tj at hanselgroup.com. but phone is, is probably one of the better ways to get a hold of me at the moment. Because uh, as you said earlier, three kids, way too many things going on. There's a lot, There's a lot in the Hansel household. There's a lot going there on. There is. There yeah. is. Uh, when you have the three that are all seven or younger, it, it gets a little chaotic oh. at times. Oh, Bless your heart. Okay. Yes. Your, your house is crazy at the moment. <laughs> yeah. I've got a great wife. That's, that's how we make it happen. That's nice. the way to put in that way to go wiser words um listen we loved having you on the show today thank you so so much for sharing all your experience and knowledge with us it was a real pleasure it was i learned tons of things i didn't oh, yeah. know about I so thank notes. you i was taking notes <laughs> well, that's good well i appreciate you guys having me on and uh look forward to listening to some more of the podcasts in the near future and uh, let me know if you ever want me back okay thanks sure will appreciate it bye-bye hey thanks for listening We wouldn't do it without you because we couldn't do it without you. Please, if you like what you're hearing, leave a review of Fundraising Heyday on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps us spread the word about this podcast, and we would greatly appreciate it. We're honored that you chose to spend time with us, and we'd love for this podcast to be part of your professional development lineup. Thank you again to our Season 4 sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. We appreciate their support in making grants less stressful. Visit their website, dhleonardconsulting.com, to download their latest free resources today. Thanks again for joining us. We appreciate you and hope you'll tune in in two weeks for our next episode. It's a favorite one of mine. Ripped from the headlines. Yes. Be sure to join us. Bye now. Bye, y'all.